This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. That's not Welcome to the Midas Touch Podcast. Ben Micellis joined by my younger brothers, Brett Micellis and Jordy Micellis. Midas Touch, the founders and creators, not just of a major political movement, but of the phrase hashtag Saki Bomb was confirmed today in an earlier interview that me and the brothers did with the Stephanie Miller and Stephanie Miller show. I, as a lawyer, used my deposition skills and concretely uncovered without any dispute that Midas touch originated the term Saki bomb. And while we did create a truce between the Midas touch podcast and the Stephanie Miller podcast, let it be known Saki bomb. (laughs) Right. Definitely a big time truce though between Midas and Stephanie. Big time true. So we we love Stephanie Miller. We love going on our podcast uh, this morning that we're recording this. We were actually on her happy hour show, which is her super fun. You know, she's normally on the radio. You got to watch what you say. But we had a really great time on her show because you're just able to let loose on our happy hour show. Listen to her podcast after you listen to our podcast. And then she had, yeah, please. No, her show is fantastic. And then she said that once we all get vaccinated and that we're all good to go, we're going to go get some celebrations Celebratory Saki bombs with Jen Saki and with Stephanie. And I just can't wait for that. I mean, that sounds like the greatest thing of all time. Are you kidding? I am ready, except for the fact that I don't drink. I will do non-alcoholic Saki bombs. How about I like that, that, fellas? That's a, yeah, I don't know if many people know that you don't drink. You mentioned it sort of pretty low key, but for those listening, Ben does not drink. It was about two and a half years ago, three years ago, Brett got married. So Ben kind of got hit with a back-to-back where there were some wedding photos that had come out. Ben was also doing a lot of uh, publicity <laughs> for some fire Festival documentaries. And I don't think my man, my, my older brother, really liked the way he was looking in those photos and videos. So he had said to himself, hey, I'm done drinking. He went I'm going to get detox. my weight right. And then he just started running like Forrest Gump levels yeah, of running. If you know anything about Ben, he can't do anything half-assed. Like anything he does, it needs to be to the total extreme. So when Ben started running, and he used to run back in the day in high school, Ben used to run track and be on the soccer team and things like that. But when Ben started running to work out, he wouldn't be like, oh yeah, let me do like a two or three miles on the treadmill. Ben was like, no, I'm going to run 15 miles today. I'm going to run from downtown Los Angeles to Malibu. I'm going to run a marathon tomorrow. Like he just 
just goes all in. And with the drinking, he goes, you know, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm only black tea, only black tea. And literally every single restaurant we've ever, we ever go to with Ben, the first thing he does is make sure they have black tea on the menu. And if they don't like, he's like, is there a way, any way you could get black tea? Like I'll do any, any kind of black tea. But can you please get <laughs> yeah, a black tea? And people who don't watch, you know, some of the clips that we post, you can see it in my hand, but at all times I will always have, a coffee cup in my hand, but there will always be English breakfast tea or chai tea. In fact, I get so much chai tea that I often buy out the entire store after like three weeks. If I'm in a new area, I'll go through the entire chai tea and English breakfast tea selection at like a Starbucks where they'll be completely (laughs) out and they'll be like, we've just never seen anybody drink tea like that? Are you living in this alternative tea universe? I said, (laughs) no, I like tea, but let's talk about today's theme. And today's theme, fellas, spill the tea, the alternative universe of the GQP and the world that they are living in. This is not the old days where we were talking about nuanced debates over tax policy and spending uh, priorities. We're talking about a GQP who can support an anti-women's violence bill. We're talking about the GQP who can support a bill honoring the Capitol Hill police officers who defended a Capitol building. We are talking about a GQP who blames their racism and their hatred on low blood sugar, um, who claims that an individual who went out and engaged in the mass murder and hate crimes of the Asian community was having, quote, unquote, a bad day and was simply trying to end his temptation. We are living, folks, in an alternative universe that Midas Touch is calling out. And we need to be clear, the Democratic Party is the pro-democracy party living in reality. And this crazy GQP party, they are living in their own fucked up virtual reality of chaos and conspiracy. Ben is fired up today. And rightfully so. be a good episode. Ben is fired up. I think it's he's drinking a, and the extra caffeinated tea today, I think. Is I got going. two tea bags oh, yeah, today. That's exactly that's what's happening here. Now People are going to think we're I, sponsored by tea. Next time you're ordering tea, make sure you enter promo code Ben at checkout. Yeah, like tea is just the brand. Yeah. No, the truth is I'm overcompensating because normally the brothers and I will talk slightly before the show about what we're going to talk about. <laughs> um, but today, I think if I just give some extra energy, I'm just going to overcompensate compensate for the lack of the pre-meeting before the pot. <laughs> Great work out there, B. Let's pull it back a little bit and dig into some of these stories. Jordy, I know you've been hyper-focused on a story about an announcer. This was earlier in the week. Could you tell us what happened with the racist remarks of the announcer? Give us some context for what happened there just to set the stage. Yeah, it's a segment called, please excuse my racism. I have blank. And what I mean by that is we've seen the most ridiculous excuses come out of why people exhibited just blatantly racist behavior. So one, a former youth pastor, Matt Rowan, called the Norman High School girls basketball team fucking N-words on a hot mic while announcing the girls basketball game as the team knelt in unity during the national anthem. Now, Matt Rowan would then quickly go on to blame the incident on his diabetes, saying... I will state that I suffered type 1 diabetes, and during the game, my sugar was spiking. While not excusing my remarks, it is not unusual when my sugar spikes that I become disoriented and often say things that are not appropriate as well as hurtful. 
Some people get insulin. Some people say the N-word. Let's Uh, be clear. (laughs) We talk about some people, okay? We are talking about white people and white supremacists engaging in conduct consistent with their racism and white supremacy. And when they are exposed, they blame it on a health-related issue. They blame it on their temptation, that they're having a bad day. And these are sick freaking people in many cases, like the ones that Jordy will talk about the massacre at the Asian massage locations, that people deserve to be held accountable to the fullest extent of the law. And they need to be called murderers. They need to be called terrorists. They need to be called what they are. I got to commend Jordy, you, because you and another account that we follow and admire of the work they're doing, Resist Programming, put a lot of pressure on the sponsors of OPSN Live's broadcasts. Who OPSN Live is Matt Rowan's streaming service where he said these statements over. And since then, they've lost five out of six of their sponsors by you just using your platform, Jordy, and Resist Programming. Great job, Jordy. Using their platform. I I, want to be clear. This is why I do the shout out to the Mightiest Mighty, because it's not just me. I could say these things into a void. And if people don't take action on their own and to, to help the cause, you know, nothing's going to get done. So it definitely just was not just me, although I appreciate the accolades, Bert. On behalf, oh, Bert, we got a Bert, Bert drop. We got a uh, <laughs> but Bert on behalf drop. of the Midas Mighty and and yeah, no, we, 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 we appreciate it. Yeah, we we pressured uh, five of the six sponsored. One was just completely complicit in the whole thing. So we knew that one wasn't going to happen. The page, I won't say it again. He doesn't deserve the free advertising, but he then removed his official website. It's totally taken down. His YouTube channel no longer has any content published on it. And same with his Facebook. So we completely, you know, together dismantled that company. And I, you know, am just so thankful to the Midas Mighty for putting the pressure on the sponsors. If there's enough pressure on a company, if there's enough outrage, companies will change. If they see things as a threat to their bottom line, they will change what they're doing. And that's why it is so important that you use your voice. You could think, oh, you know what? I have a, a small account. You know, what, what's my voice going to do? Well, your voice is going to add up with someone else's voice, and those are going to exponentially grow and increase. And it all works to put pressure on companies. And we need to do that across the board, whether it's companies supporting racism, co- companies supporting attacks on voting rights, and so on. Turning to a sobering and incredibly tragic story um, this week, the mass shooting at several Asian massage locations in the Atlanta, Georgia region, the Cherokee County uh, specifically. Let's be clear on the background here. This outcome is a direct result of Donald Trump calling the coronavirus, the Kung flu, the China virus. And instead of having a plan to combat the global pandemic by blaming the pandemic on the Asian community, on the Chinese community for his own failed leadership and constantly mocking the Asian community. This is a natural result and consequence of that. Jordy spoke on the last podcast before this shooting of the incredibly tragic but incredibly significant and substantial spike in anti-Asian hate-related crimes. You hear about it in the news, but you hear about it through through our friends, through people who we know who are from the Asian community who have experienced these hate crimes. And so, Brett or Jordy, tell us about what, what tragically happened this week and what the sheriff said. 
Yes, so a white 21-year-old male terrorist was charged Wednesday. He killed eight people between three Atlanta-area massage parlors. Now, six of the eight were of Asian descent. The white male, he told police that Tuesday's attack was not racially motivated and blamed it on his sex addiction. Excuse my racism, I have blank. Yeah, which is fucking crazy. Authorities said he lashed out at what he saw as sources of temptation. And people immediately, and rightfully so, were incredibly skeptical of these comments. And Ted Lieu, I think, summed it up best. I'm going to paraphrase here, but Representative Lieu said something to the effect of, if sex addiction is your issue and your sexual predilection is towards Asian woman, if that's your thing, and because of that, you take out your frustration by killing Asian Asian woman, that is a racially motivated incident. That is race and sex. These are not mutually exclusive things. And then we found out that a Korean paper was reporting that the shooter told one of the massage parlor employees, I'm going to kill all Asians. It just seems like in all these scenarios, we are seeing, in some cases, the media and oftentimes the sheriffs, the police departments going to bat, not for the victims' rights, but for the rights of these murderers, for the rights of these terrorists. Let's listen to Cherokee County Sheriff Captain Jay Baker, why he said that this shooter went on this killing rampage. With investigators, they interviewed him this morning, and I, uh, they got that impression that, yes, he, he understood um, the gravity of it. And he was pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope. And, um, and yesterday was a really bad day for him. And this is what he did. He said that the killer was fed up and this was a really bad day for him, for the killer. It's like, no, this wasn't a bad day for him, the killer. When you have a bad day, you might actually go and have a spa day. You might have a drink, not Ben. If you're Ben, you might have some tea. You might take a nap. You might play video games. That's what you do when you have a bad day. You don't go and murder eight people in cold blood. That is not a bad day. And let's talk about the where this is rooted. This is rooted in the alternative reality of Trumpism, where they everything rather than just dealing with the truth is blamed on conspiracies or blamed on people, not on the quality of character, but on race. And this particular sheriff has a racist history. He is a racist. He is a white supremacist. And when we look back at old social media posts of this Cherokee County Sheriff Jay Baker, it says, love my shirt. This was a post he put on Facebook. Love my shirt. Get yours while they last. And the shirt is mocking COVID-19. And it says imported virus from China and spelled C-H-Y-N-A. I'm not going to do the pronunciation of the way Trump did it, but that's what the way Trump would call the China virus, mocking Chinese people. And so this sheriff was incapable to meet the moment and the views of the sheriff, frankly, instead of upholding the law, allow sick fucks like this terrorist who killed people to kill people and kill the Asian community, people in the Asian community like they did. And this is rooted, let's be clear, in white supremacy as embodied in Trumpism, period. 
now Republicans are just constantly saying the quiet part out loud. It seems like racism is just out in the open. These people may as well be wearing their hoods into the halls of Congress. That's how bad it is getting. That's why they like Trump. They were like, oh, shit, we don't have to wear the hoods anymore. We can just be fucking racist and walk around and just fucking and just do this without the outfits. And 25% of the population, 33 is going to support us. We don't even have to hide. Fuck it. Let's do it. Let's support Donald Trump. That's their whole support base at this point. They are a sick fucking group of people who are white supremacist racists. That's all they are. Just call them out. It's true. I, I wish we were arguing, you know, what do you think the tax policy is better for this? What do you think the fair minimum wage? I wish we were arguing normal issues with people, but unfortunately we're not there and we're not going to be there until we eradicate this threat of Trumpism and fascism and racism from our society. And we actually made a video over the weekend about Ron Johnson called hashtag resign Ron. And it showed Johnson's words that said, I'm not afraid of these January 6th attackers. Those were patriots who loved this country. They would never hurt cops. They would never do anything to break the law. However, if they were Black Lives Matter protesters, then I would be afraid of them. I mean, that's the most obvious example of racism that you could possibly say. And if you thought that was bad, flash cut to... Thursday morning when Representative Chip Roy of Texas in opening remarks about these rising hate crimes against the Asian community said this out loud. He actually said this. There's old sayings in Texas about, you know, find the, all the rope in Texas and get a tall oak tree. Uh, you know, we take justice very seriously and, and we ought to do that. Uh, round up the bad guys. That's what we believe. Literally talking about a lynching when in doing his opening remarks to speak out against hatred against Asians. Yeah, there was a so, time when it was what you would do in a bipartisan fashion because uh, speaking out against hate crimes, speaking out against terrorism is bipartisan. That should transcend political parties. But here we have the GQP when confronted with a tragedy where we should all rally around the country and rally around, in this case, the Asian community, the country when it comes to the attack on the Capitol, the Asian community when it comes to this terrorist attack. They are incapable of even saying and relating to the victims. All they want to do is speak in racist tropes about lynchings and blame Black Lives Matter. You can't say there's no racism in America and then say, now here's an old timey saying that my family passed down for generations about lynching. I mean, those two sentences are not compatible. I am sorry. Actually, I am not sorry. Now, the problem is at the end of the day, we're living in different realities as you were touching on, Ben. I mean, when 9-11 happened, everybody rallied and knew the terrorists were the bad guys and wanted to do everything that we could to get rid of terrorism in America. When the Oklahoma City bombing happened, everybody got together and knew this is a bad thing. No one said, you know, Timothy McVeigh was having a bad day. You know except what? Maybe Josh Hawley and uh, let me, uh, fucking uh, let, Yeah, let me college. Daniel Dale you on that real quick or, uh, you know, Daniel Mycellus you real quick on that one. Maybe Josh Hawley, who wrote a whole paper defending the actions of the Oklahoma City bomb. What a fuck. I fucking hate Josh Hawley. And by the way, if you're ever going to start a sentence, there's an old saying in Texas. Just fucking stop. You should not complete that sentence. Odds are it's ridiculously racist. <laughs> now the problem is, is that when you have somebody like the Kenosha killer, the person who drove across state lines to Kenosha, Wisconsin to kill protesters. Not only does the right not condemn it, what they're saying 
is this guy is a hero. This guy is a model citizen. This is who your kids should aspire to be. Tucker Carlson hails this person as a hero. Conservatives all want him to like run for Congress and shit. It's really demented, demented stuff. And now when this young man drives to multiple Asian massage parlors to murder people, the right and the police are rushing to defend not the victims, but the killer themselves. I mean, we're in a twisted world right now, if that's the reality with the people with whom we're dealing. And that's one of the issues with trying to get into policy and things. It's that if we don't agree on the fundamental idea that murder is bad, how do we move forward from there? And speaking about alternative realities, Brett, as you mentioned, you know, here, uh, the House Democrats proposed a bill honoring the Capitol Police who defended the Capitol from the January 6th insurrection. Just think about that. Should be the most uncontroversial bill. If you say you support the blue, as the GQP used to say, they don't even, they don't support the police. Let's be clear. The GQP hates the police and they're anti-military at this point. I just want to be very clear on that. But if you support the police and you support democracy, you would support the police officers who were at the Capitol building that day who were holding back the GQP-inspired insurgents and terrorists who tried to attack the Capitol building. So the Democrats continued to try to introduce this bill honoring the Capitol police officers, and the GQP tried to prolong it and basically to all these procedural maneuvers so that the bill can never even be voted on. Finally, the bill was voted on um, after the GQP like tried to delay and forestall this bill and 12 Republicans voted against it. 12 GQP members voted against it. John Ross, Greg Stube, Bob Good, Andrew Clyde, Michael Cloud, Matt Gates. Lance Gooden, Andy Harris, Thomas Massey, Andy Biggs, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Louis Gomer. And we've heard these names before. It's the same names. Same names. Yeah. Same names every time. It's like the same names every time. And just sick individuals. And just going on my journey, taking you one step further on the Josh Howley or Holly. It should be Josh Holly. I got an email that said <laughs> from a Holly who's probably listening to this, who said us, it's spelled H-A-W-L-E's. It's pronounced Holly's. Love the show, but it's pronounced Holly. And I actually hear a lot of people, even in the media, refer to it as Holly. So anybody out there, it is Josh Holly. When Holly was 15 years old, his response to the Oklahoma City bombing was, quote, many of the people populating these movements are not radical, right-wing, pro-assault, weapons freaks as they were originally stereotyped, dismissed by the media and treated with disdain by their elected leaders. These citizens come together and form groups that often draw more medium fire as anti-government hate gatherings. Okay, you're right, Jordy. I just want to take that back. At that time, Josh Hawley, who's a senator now, is a sick fucking terrorist <laughs> man his entire fucking life. Yes, He's like this one of these man kid is acting just consistent with the way He's always been. This is a sick fuck. It's really disturbing. And it's really disturbing that these people are in, are in Congress and in the Senate. It's really crazy. And there's no coincidence here that the names you listed off, Ben, of the people who voted against the bill are people who seem to be very connected to the insurrection itself. They have a lot of ties to the insurrection. A lot of them were calling for violence. I mean, heck, five days before Louis Gohmert was literally calling for violence. And, and we have a clip of that. We'll play it. Bottom line is, the court is saying, we're not going to touch this. You have no remedy. 
basically, in effect, mm-hmm. the ruling would be that you got to go to the streets and be as violent as Antifa and BLM. So five days before the insurrection, Representative Louis Gohmert saying that basically with the way the court cases are going, not in Trump's favor, the only option is to, quote, be as violent as Antifa or BLM. And by the way, when when that fucker, Donald Trump, went on Fox News the other day, he basically called the Supreme Court cowardly for not overturning the elections. He's still perpetuating the big lie. He's still out there saying these things post-insurrection that led to the insurrection. And finally, Brett, another way that we know they're living, the GQP is living in the alternative reality is the resolution to renew the Violence Against Women Act. Okay, the Violence Against Women Act is what famously was one of Joe Biden's President Biden's biggest accomplishments as a senator. Biden wrote the legislation, which was first signed into law by Clinton in 1994. The bill provides money towards investigating and prosecuting violent crimes against women and imposing automatic and automatic and mandatory restitution on those convictions and providing for civil redress in cases where prosecutors choose not to prosecute cases. And so this bill had always been passing with bipartisan support until 2012, when Republicans objected to adding protections to same-sex couples. But this is a bill that is a bipartisan bill in nature. Now, 172 Republicans voted against the Violence Against Women Act. The GQP is pro-violence against women. Does that shock you? It doesn't shock me at this point, but there's no other way to read it. I mean, this bill is extremely bipartisan in its nature and very obvious. I mean, in addition to the things you described, it institutes the federal rape shield law that limits the ability to introduce evidence of a rape victim's past sexual history to try to denigrate them in front of a court. It provides funding for victim assistance centers like crisis centers and hotlines, creates community violence prevention programs. I mean, these are the things that are extremely basic and important, yet the GQP votes against it. It's it's baffling. It's really, really baffling. I mean, I'll tell you how bipartisan this was. Not only did it pass in a, by a bipartisan nature until really 2012 when the same-sex couples were looped in and you know how horrible to give protections to same-sex couples but in 1993 when this passed the house it literally passed via a voice vote they didn't even have to tally the floor because everyone agreed with it they just said i and moved on and passed it that's how radical this republican party has become i just don't know how you can vote no to this and then sleep and like look at yourself in the mirror and be able to sleep at night the only rationalization i could come up with is like they just don't care they're genuinely bad, awful people who don't give a shit. And that's the thesis. We are living in a reality where we want to help people, where we want to promote humanity, bring people together, support democracy. Okay. That is where I thought our country always was. We may have our disagreements of how best to perfect our democracy, but we essentially agree on the premise of democracy. Okay, Um, but when we have, you know, even even questions like from our next guest, Brian Karam, when he asked Trump about the peaceful transition of power and Trump couldn't answer that question directly. It was the first time since like 1792, you know, from the very foundation of our country where we 
where we ever dealt with this issue of a peaceful transition of power. We now know, simply put, that there is no intent to have a peaceful transfer of power and that the GQP wants to see a North Korea-style version of a dictatorship in America that upholds white supremacy. That is where the GQP sides when they vote against the Anti-Violence Against Women Act, when they don't want to support the police officers who bravely defended the Capitol building, where they try to blame their racism on, uh, on, on not feeling well in a specific day, where they support and promote, though, this uh, horrible anti-Asian, anti-Black and brown rhetoric. These are a disgusting group of people. But someone who's been on the forefront and on the front lines of exposing them is Playboy reporter Brian Karam when we come back after these messages. Welcome back to the Midas Touch podcast. The one and only Brian Karam joining us. Brian, how are you? Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being had. <laughs> so we were on Brian's podcast the other day with, according to the reviews, Brian, that I've heard, you know, I don't know if you've heard the same. We were your favorite guests of all time. Did you did you hear that? It got out. Somehow that escaped. Yes, yeah. we, we even we issued a press release. I hear that I was doing my digging like a journalist. Of course, we all know you for your incredible work. Just asking truthful and what perceived as very tough questions. They were tough because you asked the truth. And you stood up to power, specifically asking Trump whether he was committed to a peaceful transfer of power. But, Brian, I want to go back, though, because I think a lot of the public knows the work you did there. But you've always been, as a journalist, asking very tough questions. You received, obviously, the National Press Club Freedom of Press Award in 1991 for keeping a source confidential in a shooting case involving a police officer. Tell us a little bit just about what that case was, because before framing what you were doing in the White House press, you know, press secretary's office that day when you were a member of the press club, I want to go back to your background. Well, I was covering a, I was a, a crime reporter at the time in San Antonio for a Channel 4 KMOL TV, which is now WOAI and owned by Sinclair. It was owned by, uh, uh, at, at the time, by United Television. And um, I, there had been a couple of cop shootings, and our overnight photographer has to keep me on uh, you know, standby. If there's another cop-involved shooting, I'll, I'll come out no matter what time and, and get here. And I did. And it was midway through uh, this guy's Gary Williams' uh, overnight shift when he pulled over two Hispanic brothers, uh, a fight ensued and uh, the cop got killed and everybody said that they were going to find these two kids and kill them. Um, And nobody really gave them much credit. They were young, poor Hispanic kids on the wrong side of town. Um, And so they gave themselves in. I got a jailhouse interview with one of them who said that uh, they didn't start the fight that the cop did. Uh, nobody believed him, you know, the, until six weeks later when the uh, autopsy report came back and the cop had been speedballing. He had cocaine and heroin in his system at the time. And so when the, the two brothers said, hey, these guys, the guy pulled us over and started hazing us for no reason, started to make some sense. Um, I had three sources I protected. I went to jail four times. It went to the Supreme Court uh, the last time. And uh, the Supreme Court kind of thumbed its nose or gave its middle finger to me. They wouldn't even let me out of uh, jail long enough to pursue it. Uh, it was in federal 
court at the federal appeals court headed towards the Supreme Court, and they wouldn't even let me out of jail to pursue the uh, the appeal. So at that point in time, my uh, source, who by now, the one that I was really hopeful in protecting, who um, was afraid for her life, she had fled to California, and she came forward voluntarily, and they let me out of jail. So there's and, a long story short. Yeah, and no, I appreciate the brevity, but also the complexity of the story. And you had district court judges, law enforcement, everybody telling you, you have to reveal this source, but yet your journalistic integrity, you know, you, you stood up to that. You were willing to even go to jail for it. We're um, done. So, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I mean, walk me through four, what, times. What's going through, four times. What's <laughs> yeah. going through your mind? Because that level of courage, obviously you received appropriately. So the award for it, but I don't think lots of people in this day and age, you know, would be willing to, would be willing to do that. Well, the first thing that went through my mind is I'm glad I had training in boxing. I wasn't, I was going to sleep with my head against, you know, my back against the wall, not picking up the soap in the shower. Uh, but most of the, most of the guys in jail, the two weeks I was there the last time uh, were very cool because they liked the idea that uh, I was in jail because I, I wouldn't snitch. <laughs> Snitches get stitches. So they were very happy yeah, that that's I was street cred. Snitch. I like it. Yeah. So they kind of gave me, you know, say, ah, that guy's all right. So uh, it was, I only got in one fight. It was um, a, a guy named Baby Huey. He was about six, eight, and he, he looked like Shrek. And he got, uh, he, he thought I was getting it kind of easy in prison. So he was going to try and start a fight with me. And um, he probably would have kicked my butt out in the real world. But I had a, I was uh, scrubbing nicotine stains off the ceilings that, that day. And there was a mop next to me that someone had got done, just got done mopping the floor. And I picked up the mop handle and hit him across the head and stuck his head in the toilet. And after that, they left me alone. <laughs> so, oh my God. You see, so I'll tell you this. So when Brett and Jordy didn't know that I was going to start going there with the interview, they thought I was going to start going right with the Trump stuff. But now you see, it was definitely worth pursuing it, Brett. And get this, before Brian dealt with the American dictator, he was dealing with other dictators and drug lords previously to our dictator and drug lord that we had for four <laughs> years. So Brian was in Kuwait City and was one of the first in uh, in Colombia with Pablo Escobar during the drug war. So you're always finding yourselves in these positions. Just walk us through briefly the Kuwait situation and what you took out of that and then the Pablo Escobar situation. Well, um, yeah, the, the first one was was the, uh, the Gulf War. And I went over there uh, the first time to cover the uh, deployment of a, a, a hospital, uh, the 41st Combat Support Hospital. And then when the bombing started, I went back. I had to fight with the military because they kept telling me that they weren't going to let me to the front at all. So I had to drive, you know, by myself, run some checkpoints, got in the middle of one tank battle to get through to the, um, it was 73 Easting was the, the name of that battle, I think. And outside of Kofji, we got into some other stuff. And then up near Rafa, we finally found the hospital I was at, and then they were put on hold. So we left that hospital with the news that the uh, the uh, ground war was going to break out, and we rode uh, through north through uh, Kuwait, um, through northern Saudi Arabia. After having been in Iraq and coming back to Dharan, drove up and got into Kuwait City while the battle was uh, pretty much finishing up. We got, um, you know, there was it was kind of hot. There was one point where a one of the uh, there was a guy by the side of the road with an AK-47, and 
my uh, the producer that was with me said, "Hey, uh, this is a uh, a guy from Iraq. They're 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 turning themselves into American soldiers. Let's let's get him in in here and we'll take him with us." I'm going. Dude, he's got an AK-47, and I got an Icky 79. He's got a gun. I got a camera. <laughs> I ain't going anywhere with him. So we avoided him, and then there were a couple of – we had to drive through a minefield or around a minefield, not through it. Thankfully, not through it. Um, part of it had already been removed, so we just were very careful driving through it. And then got to Kuwait City, put the flyway up, and uh, did stand-ups uh, with uh, Tom Brokaw and some of the other members of the NBC team for uh, – you know, three or four days after the end of that war and then came back. You were one of the first reporters, if not the first reporter in, in Kuwait City. Huh? We were, uh, yeah, we were definitely among the first. I mean, I don't know technically who got there first, but I mean, we were doing stand-ups and live shots and sending stuff back to New York and to San Antonio the day that it was liberated. And there, there was still gunfire. We could still hear. There was, we interviewed people that were, first time I'd ever seen pro-American graffiti. It was like, welcome Americans. People were offering to make us dinner. Hey, when you're here, you're the good guys. And so that was really nice. Uh, good, good food. And then uh, we interviewed people that had been tortured by the uh, Iraqi Republican Guard. And then we went to a, uh, it was a, a internment, uh, the 41st Combat Support Hospital. It also ended up taking some uh, POWs in a fenced in area. And that was really weird. That was some of the elite Republican guard from, uh, from uh, Saddam Hussein. And uh, they didn't look elite and there wasn't a Republican in the bunch, but they were all in this uh, kind of fenced in area. And then I saw this one guy and he had on a, a, a Chicago bears Jersey. And I went over to him and I started talking to him in English. I knew, you know, Arabic uh, enough to get shot, but I, you know, there was, there was this guy with a, he had a Walter Payton jersey on. And I go, Hey dude, why are you wearing a Walter Payton jersey? He goes, I'm from Chicago, damn it. And I go, well, what are you doing here? And he goes, I came home to visit my grandparents and they put me in a damn army. And I've been, he was in the Iraqi army against his will. All he had on, all he had on was what he came there with a, a Walter Payton jersey. And of course we have the hydroxychloroquine drug Lord of our president, but briefly, you can go into the Pablo Escobar, oh. the Pablo Escobar. Were you the first reporter to enter into Pablo we Escobar's were. home after he escaped Colombian prison? After he escaped the prison, it was. <laughs> the stories uh, are crazy. These are the craziest <laughs> stories in the world. <laughs> Have you uh, considered uh, contacting Dos Equis and seeing if you could take over oh, as the most the interesting stories. man? <laughs> so we were, we were doing the. For America's Most Wanted, we were doing a story on the hunt for Pablo Escobar. So we went down to Colombia and uh, we had to, you know, we flew in in a, a Huey helicopter to Envigado, the prison. It was in the countryside. And it was the only prison I've ever seen where the gun turrets pointed out. It was not a prison. It was his fort. And there were these bungalows. They had a, they had a porno bungalow and they had a playing field for uh, for uh for soccer and then they had a pool and a jacuzzi and he had this wonderful there was like four or five different buildings where him and his buddies they uh, lived and they had motorcycles and dirt bikes and he even had a uh, bomb proof bunker because he thought the american government was going to bomb him and so he was going to protect himself and we went there and um his place looked like jurassic park he had a a beautiful uh estate and they had like these dinosaur, big dinosaur things and a zoo and 
all these monuments. And so you go up there and he had escaped like a week before because the uh, Colombian government had enough of him. We're going to move him to a more secure facility. So he uh, escaped out the back, paid somebody off, ran into the jungle and off into the hinterlands. And so we were there first and Sam Donaldson got there, I think the week after we did. So it was, that was, yeah, we were very happy to get in there and do that story. And then of course he got, caught on a rooftop and got shot and killed not too long after. Yeah. All right. I'll let Brett talk about that. <laughs> That's some, there was the some most gunfire. We, we had to dodge a little bit of gunfire there. That was fun. I'm over here like, yeah, well, I went, I went to Japan one time and Brian's like, I got chased by helicopters and gunfire and ran through a minefield. I'm like, geez, what, what, a, what a life. So that prepared you, though, for the Trump administration. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nothing was like Trump. Uh, I'll tell you the God's honest truth about that. I've covered wars. I covered the uh, drug wars. I've covered riots. January 6th at the insurrection in the Capitol was the most uh, unsafe I ever felt covering a story. Out of all the stuff I've ever covered, that was one time I had my head on a swivel all day long. And um, I've never felt that unsafe anywhere. And that was the U.S. Capitol. Well, I'd gone down there, you know, it was a normal day at the White House, <laughs> as if any day was normal. And, uh, you know, so I had a couple of death threats just walking across the street that morning. There was a guy, big fat guy with a Confederate flag. He said he was going to kill me. I recognize you. And I said, OK. And the Secret Service guy was standing there. He goes, don't worry, I got this. So I walked into the campus, went through the metal detector, you know, uh, set up. And then Trump had a speech that I went and covered uh out uh, the south, you know, between uh, the Capitol and and the White House, the one where he had Giuliani, you know, trial by gunfire, right. and one of his interchangeable kids was there screaming and ranting, raving. And then I talked to the, yeah, you know, it, it just reminded me of these kids that just, you know, always got picked last for kickball. So then we're we're talking to, I'm listening to the, uh, the, the uh, speech and then all the guys walk off and they're going, we're going to the Capitol because the president said to do it. We're taking it back. And, you know, it was like something out of South park. It was, you know, it was just really, you know, weird. They took our jobs. So they all marched, <laughs> they all marched up there ready for a fight. And um, they, and they were screaming at, you know, reporters. And there was the one guys that were crawling up the walls I, I remember going, guys, there, you know, there's steps on either side. You don't have to crawl the walls. You know, you're not Spider-Man. You can go up the steps. And uh, one fell off and broke his neck. Oh, and so then, you know, they were dumb. And then they came over screaming, you know, they were going to kill reporters. And I said, wait, I'm with Playboy. And then they, they go, really? Uh, can you get us to a party? Can we get in a party? <laughs> and that was... So my life was saved by the fact that I had a Playboy press pass with, you know, the little bunny ears. Well, good thing you didn't uh, give them like your CNN affiliation or. or oh, no, if I'd given them a CNN badge, I'd, be, I'd have been skewered. I'd have been right there standing next to Mike Pence as they put him up, you know, on, on did, a rope. Did it seem like they had a plan when they were headed towards the Capitol? Like, did you sense of like, oh, like shit's about to go down? Yeah, the plan was, you know, any I've covered so many mobs. The, the, the plan is just rabble, 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 mad, 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 storm the Bastille type of stuff, you know, pitchforks and, you know, that's that's what it is. And that's why it's really unsafe. That's what makes it the most unsafe is because there's no, you know, in a, in a war or even in a riot, you know, there's the police, there's the rioters. Right. And you kind of know 
what's going on in a war, you know, there's uh, okay. These guys are in tanks. These guys are not Here's You know, you kind of get denied, but in that was so confusing because you didn't know you couldn't cover it because they wanted to put you in the story. And so they, you know, they were coming after reporters as well as going after the Capitol. It was just a, a bloodlust. I mean, it was like, like somebody got up in the morning, drank the wrong alcohol and decided to go on a killing spree. And Brian, you famously had a contentious, uh, to say the least, relationship with the Trump administration in the press briefing room. Was the first kind of major public incident with Sarah Huckabee Sanders when you confronted her about immigration? Come on, Sarah, you're a parent. Don't you have any empathy for what these people are going through? They have less than you do. Guys, settle down. I'm trying to be serious, but I'm not going to have you yell out a turn. Was that kind of the first? Yeah, it was... uh, well, it was six months in and um, I had taken, you know, I don't like listening to them try to bully us. And I got real sick of them calling us fake news and enemy of the people. And I had had a couple of moments of pushback on that. We're not fake media. Watch it. Don't say that. And off uh, camera, when I would go in there and talk to him, I'd say, look, just don't do that. That's, you know, you're doing your job. We're doing ours. And it got nowhere. Um and so that one day she came out and I said, you know, that's it. You know, she wanted us, to, it was before the um, immigration. It was like six months before that. The first one was over the, the fake media. And she wanted, Sarah Sanders wanted us to look at a piece of video that she <laughs> admitted she hadn't seen, but thought it was really good. And it was an invented piece of, it was actual fake media. And I just said, you know, stop it. Just stop it. You know, we're here doing our job. Anybody can turn a channel if they don't like what they see. They don't have to read us, but we're stuck with you for four years. So just stop it. And I just, I just basically confronted her on that. We're I here think, to ask you questions. Right. We're here to provide the answers. And what you just did is inflammatory to people all over the country who look at it and say, see, once again, the president's right and everybody else out here is fake media. And everybody in this room is only trying to do their job. Well, I, I just I, I disagree completely. First of all, I think if anything has been inflamed, uh, it's the dishonesty that often takes place by the news media. What was funny is I, I didn't think anything about it. I was just pissed at the time and got tired of their bullshit. Um, and I started treating her like she was one of my football players in high school. <laughs> almost said like, drop and give me twenty, jumping jacks, take a couple of laps. And um, so then uh, I my phone, well actually my my uh, my watch started vibrating because it's uh, tied in with my phone and there are all these people on Twitter who apparently were going uh, you know following me all of a sudden and it would notify me <laughs> and it was so it's like vibrating and and I was like holy shit what did I do I just told you to shut the hell up you know so that yeah that was the first time were you and there then, for the very first one when Sean Spicer talked yes, about I the was. big crowd side was that just the weirdest fucking thing you ever experienced in your like were you was that like your moment like yes. this is fucked up well that's I, I remember turning to someone and going well we know where this is going yeah. there's not going to be any truth in this administration at all you got to push back i mean that's what set the tone and if you weren't a reporter listening if everyone got upset with me the first time i got there were a lot of people in the white house press corps who got upset with me the first time i got into it with the administration they're going you, you, you made us part of the story and you should just take notes and you shouldn't say anything. And I'm going, bullshit. They made me part of the story when they call me fake news. I'm not standing there taking that shit from anybody. Fuck that. And so, you know, I don't give a shit what they thought of me. I'm not there for them. And, you know, that's 
that's what uh, I go back to I, old school, Helen Thomas and Sam Donaldson. You're not there for yourself. You're not that you're there for the audience that reads you or watches you. And you're there to ask questions. So ask the question and, you know, push back. You know, somebody said you're you're very antagonistic towards uh, politicians. Damn right. I am. That's my job. I look at politicians like a dog looks at a fire hydrant. That's the only way to look at them. And so I'm not going to take that kind of crap from, I don't care who you are. He was president Donald Trump, not King Donald Trump. He deserves the respect of the office, but he doesn't deserve, I'm not going to sit down just because he tells me to sit down or shut up. So, you know, in the beginning, there was some pushback and I, I just said, look, man, I don't give a shit what you, you know, you can think what you want. You do you and I'll do me. And the White House tried to have your press credentials removed oh, as well. yeah, they, and they, <clears throat> they took it away and you had to go to court and battle for that. Well, tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, three times. I, I beat him in court three times. I love that. He's a three-time loser. <laughs> First well, of I many tell, losses. I, I, I would get. tell you honestly, I may have thought that was a great accomplishment back then, but given all of the losses, I think that he loses just perennially in court. But <laughs> yeah. you're... <laughs> But your battle was a was a significant battle for the First Amendment, for the freedom of the press. Just tell us about them taking away your press pass and what you had to do to get it back. Oh, well, that was uh, I, I keep forgetting the guy's name. Gorka. Um, yeah, that. Uh, yeah, that. Guy. So he came out screaming and ranting and raving and saying kind of uh, shitty stuff. They're, about they're, the press. They're, they're and I said, look, we can talk here. We can go outside and talk all day. And he, <laughs> He, he took it as a, a direct threat. You're a punk. And I was like, yeah, whatever. So um, yeah, I didn't really give a shit what they had to say. And I was there to ask questions. You know, one woman said, uh, I said, Mr. President, could you stay and, and take a few questions from the press? Ran there around. This was the social media people that Trump liked that he brought there. And where are the real media? You all aren't. And I was like, oh, whatever. So, you know, some of them had attacked Jim Acosta that day about his book. There were others that were going after somebody else. And so Gorka uh, thought that he could yell and nobody would say anything about him. Uh, and uh, that wasn't me. And I, you know, I told him, I said, I'll, I'll talk to anybody. You can come on the podcast if you want. But, you know, I think he uh, um, blocked me. I told him to go get a job. That's, that's the thing I told him. <laughs> <laughs> like a week later, I saw him on a fish commercial or a fish oil commercial and Somebody said, well, what do you think of that? And I said, well, I told him to get a job and he did. I guess he takes advice. I don't know. <laughs> he, he listened so, to you. He took it. I yeah, just can't imagine is. after all you've been through that Sebastian Gorka is going to make you feel threatened. Well, like, Brian, yeah. I think one of the words you used too is that I think you called them also a group of people eager for demonic possession. Yeah, that's, that's what got them all I go, I go, oh, here's a group of people eager for demonic possession. <laughs> and that drove them nuts. They went crazy over that. And so I guess a week or so passed. And then one day I was going to uh, leave in the White House. In fact, the, the president had come out on the South Lawn to leave and had taken two questions from me. And, um, and I think uh, one of them may have been about Russia. And then uh, he left. We left. And on my way home, I got a, a notice on my phone that uh, I was being banned from the White House. So the first thing I did was Pick up the phone and call Ted Boutros, uh, excellent First Amendment attorney who also handled uh, the case for Acosta. He jumped on board. We filed an injunction. I got to keep my press pass. Uh, they sued uh, or they they appealed and took it to the full uh, district court. And uh, so all all five or six uh, you know guys on the court looked at it and said, fuck this, you're nuts. <laughs> Karen can go back in. And then he uh, filed another appeal and lost that. And 
What it actually did, the, the joy behind that piece of judiciary give and take was the fact that it strengthened um, the existing ruling, Cheryl, so that in the future, it's going to be harder to remove reporters. They tried to make the argument that I was combative and they can't control me. And uh, one of the uh, judges on the panel said, look, you still have the, you still have the ability if there's a, a wild mooning reporter to have them removed from the grounds, but you just can't remove someone because you don't like what they have to say. Yeah, not not in the United States of America. And we're so grateful that you were in there in the press briefing room all the time that you did get reinstated because you asked what, in my opinion, is one of the most important questions, one of the most important moments really in American history that I think will be studied and looked at for a while is when you asked in September to Trump, do you commit to making sure there is a peaceful transfer of power? And let me just play that clip so that our listeners could hear it and then we'll get into that. Win, lose, or draw in this election. Will you commit here today for a peaceful transfer of power after the election? And there has been rioting in Louisville. There's been rioting in many cities across this country, red and your so-called red and blue states. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots and the ballots are a disaster. I and, understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit oh, to making sure that there's a no, peaceful transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it, and you know who knows it better than anybody else. The Democrats know it better than anybody else. Go ahead. Even just listening to that now sends chills down my spine, especially now with the context of. January 6th. I mean, just can you take us to that moment? Like you asking that question, you being in that briefing room, getting that response, what was going through your head? (laughs) Well, the, by that time we were under COVID restrictions and you weren't allowed to be in that room unless you were part of the pool. And OANN had been there and the uh, standing in the background and the white house would let them do it. So I figured if you're going to break your own damn rules, screw you. I'm going to show up too. So I would show up whenever I damn well wanted, which was one, you know, not whenever I damn well wanted, but once a week, I was limiting myself to once a week being there instead of every day because of COVID. And I've been under lockdown like everybody else and been tested and vaccinated and inspected, neglected, rejected, and, you know, deselected. So I, that day when I got there, there was an empty seat. And so I took it. The uh, pool did not fill all the seats. I had been told I could fill a seat if it was empty. So I sat in it, the very last chair in the very back row. And uh, Trump started on and on. And I go, oh, he's not even going to call on me. <laughs> so I, I raised my hand and son of a bitch, if he didn't call on me first. And I remember going to myself, well, okay, <laughs> rock and roll, let's go. So the only question that mattered to me was we had been hearing about his uh, reticence. So I said, win, lose, or draw. Win, lose, or draw. Are you going to commit to the peaceful transfer of power? And his answer was frightening to me that he, you know, he said, well, don't stop counting the ballots. Frankly, there won't be a transfer of power. He was, he was screaming that he was going to be a dictator. And I, you know, what was uh, frustrating to me, I'm going, I, I can't, and you know, I kept trying to follow up because there had been riots. There had been concern in the country. And um, the, one of the questions after, Right after me, they didn't follow up on that. They 
they were asking about Meghan Markle and Harry. <laughs> That's what stresses me out so much about the press rooms, because I feel like they, me off. they they often take advantage of those situations and they call on somebody else. I won't like the press to form an alliance and say, oh, you didn't Never answer won. that question. Like, well, I'm going to ask the same question until we get that answer. Why, why can't now, that happen? That following up on each other, we should do better. And it should be. And that is part and parcel of the lack of experience in that briefing room. You know, like uh, the other day I was on a, a, a one of the um, COVID uh, tests or the COVID uh, briefings, and those are done by Zoom. There's 150 people in there, you know, and so they, they call on a few of us to ask questions. April Ryan, a friend of mine from Baltimore, she asked a question, and then they called on me, and I, fo- I said, I want to follow on April because they hadn't answered the question that she asked. But here's the deal. I've been doing this for a while. A lot of people, the problem with that briefing is, and this is the accusation that was leveled against me, you just want to get on TV. Some people do just want to ask a question and they don't think too much about the question, nor do they really listen to the, the give and take and the flow in the room. What, some of the best questions I've ever gotten in that briefing room over the years or in a press conference over the years is by listening to what other people are asking. And that's another thing that I learned from Sam Donald. I said, Sam would follow Helen all the time. I go, why do you do that? And he goes, oh, I like to follow the best. I mean, you, you listen to what's being asked. And I always try to ask a question that I think you sitting at home would want to have asked. I don't really care about the, you know, right now we seem to stumble over each other asking about earmarks and, you know, technical things and, and housekeeping questions. I mean, why are we asking Jen Saki housekeeping questions? I can go up there anytime during the day and ask him one of those. I think you should listen and ask policy questions in those briefings. Those are the things that are most important. Or in the case of Donald Trump, just his crazy ass bullshit that he would do all the time. You have to call him on it. Your job is to push back. You need to listen to other reporters. And like you do, I get frustrated with that. And what do you Jordy? make of the job Jen Saki's been? And what do you make of the job Jen Saki's been doing? I'm just with you. <laughs> this is what I, Brian, this is what I have to deal with. This is what I have to deal with. This is why I sit quietly in the corner until it's my time. I find my window and Ben still messes with me. Jordy, Jordy. <laughs> um, well, I, I think she is high handed and more polite, but very adept at avoiding questions and very adept at working a small room of 14 reporters. I don't like the snark that she brings sometimes, and I think we deserve better answers, but she deserves better questions. And I think the, um, the current briefing, I'm glad they're doing them because it brings back a semblance of normalcy. Yeah. But we need to have that room filled with, you know, 70 reporters. You talk to anybody who had her job before, like Joe Lockhart or any of the others. I mean, everybody gives her props for being nicer, more polite and, you know, it's a low bar to crawl over yeah, from Trump. Exactly. I mean, you know, as long as you're not threatening to kill us, you, we're, you know, <laughs> yeah, hey, all right. Hey, I get to go home today without a death threat. Yay! Uh, and they, they've done some good things. But um, it, ultimately, like Joe Lockhart said, what he worried about was when you got in a, in a press room and someone would ask a question and then, Brett, like you said, somebody would follow. And then somebody else, he goes, I would feel like they were triangulating and I was in the crosshairs. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we need more of. <clears throat> the, there's a couple of issues that I think show uh, where the, first of all, I don't know that uh, Jen sees the president every day. She has in fact told me that perhaps she doesn't. So 
The question is how much does what she say really reflect what the president is thinking? That's why you actually need a press conference with the president, which we are going to get next week. And hopefully it won't just be the pool and, and extras. It'll, it'll be in a larger venue and more people. And then secondly, what you need out of in a press briefing, those two issues that I talked about that highlighted is we were talking about Jamal Khashoggi and we've asked a couple of questions about it, but we really haven't followed up. And when we do try to follow up, it falls by the wayside. But the question that remains about Jamal Khashoggi is on the campaign trail, now President Biden swore that he would treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah state. We knew Trump wasn't going to do anything about the death of an American report uh, out of a reporter living in Virginia and working for the Washington Post. We knew that wasn't going to happen. He went on TV and said it's all about the money. But we wa- wanted and expected more out of Biden. And so we haven't really gotten an answer yet. And we need Biden himself to answer that. They have, in effect, not done any sanctions against Saudi Arabia and given him a free, you know, it's like you get one free pass for killing one reporter. Well, what happens next? I mean, there's a whole big issue about if you're going to kill, it's like killing a cop. If you're going to kill a reporter and all that takes on, how are you going to treat normal people who don't have the public eye? And why is it okay to kill one reporter who worked for the Washington Post? Why is there not sanctions? Why? This is an issue that really needs to be gone over thoroughly. And then the other one, and I give the Biden administration its props on this issue. It's the the Jordan. Uh, the, I'm sorry, I looked at your name, Jordy. It's the border. <laughs> That's a good nickname for Jordy, it's though. He's Jordan. rather than Jordy. He's the Jordan. The Jordan. <laughs> the Jordan. So, uh, down on the border, <laughs> Trump basically screwed up border policy. And there is no crisis except the one that Trump created. This is a 40 year long problem that they've played political football with since the uh, uh, economy, oil economy crashed in Mexico in the seventies and they devalued the peso. It's been a huge ongoing problem. Both sides have made political hay out of it and these people continue to suffer. So it's a huge issue to take on. And the people that I've talked to down on the border that I have known for years think that Biden is making good initial first steps in dealing with it. But you need to let us in, right, to see it. And you need to quit letting Donald Trump frame the issue. And Saki has allowed that to happen in her press briefing on a couple of occasions, you know, dealing with a crisis. She should come right out and say, look, it's a 40-year-long problem. This is going on. That is going on. And call the press out for that stupidity that we repeat because there are Republicans out there going, it's a crisis. No, it's not. It's an issue that they think they can make hay off of because they're getting killed on the coronavirus. And everybody knows that the Republicans are full of shit. So now they're just going to try and make you afraid of something again so they can get your vote in the midterms. Brian Karam, thank you for joining the Midas Touch podcast with Brett Jorder and myself. We Jorder. We appreciate it, Brian. Look forward to chatting with you soon and thank you for your time today. We will Always be right fun. back thank after you, these messages. No, that's not Welcome back to the Midas Touch podcast. Great interview with Brian Karam, huh? Amazing. Amazing. And also a great interview with Brian Karam. Uh, yeah, but Ben said it fast, so, you know, he said it right. <laughs> That's his thing, remember? Dude, <laughs> I am the worst on, uh, on fucking names, huh? Yeah. yeah. Apparently. 
Okay. Even when I know the name, I just can't. Like, I joke with clients too that I'll always be, and it's and it's not an offense to the individual. I'll always just be slightly off on somebody's name. It's like my Achilles heel. I think you just overthink it. But no, Brian Karam is really one of the best journalists out there. Like objectively, I think he is so fantastic and he's really a hero of mine. Like he's everything that you want in a journalist who's out there speaking truth to power. I really admire his work and his stories were just fucking crazy. Wild. Just like the most unbelievable shit this guy's went through. And that's why, you know, after like decades of of that, of dealing with like real issues to then have like Sebastian Gorka call you a punk or to like confront Trump and stuff. It's like the guy is like battle trained. He's like ready to go. He's like the right man for this Literally battle train. The guy's been in jail multiple times for uh, protecting a source. He's been in the Gulf War. He's been at Pablo Escobar's house after Pablo Escobar escaped. It's all so crazy. But that's what we want. That's what we want out of journalists. We want people who are going to ask important questions that people care about. And I think that's why I get so frustrated when I hear some of the questions that Saki gets asked, because she gets asked just bullshit questions that no one cares about. It's a lot more about the palace intrigue or the dog, or is he getting a cat and things like that. I'm like, let's ask questions that the people need to actually, there are important issues that people need to know about. We need experienced journalists who could do their jobs here. And Brian is that guy. And, uh, you know, I hope he actually gets back in the press briefing room soon. I would love to hear his questions to, to President Biden and, and Jen Psaki and all that. I think it would be fascinating. Totally. And one of the things that we've talked about, just switching gears for the moment as we, as we conclude the show, is the importance of aligning the bipartisan support of the people the bipartisan support on issues like raising the minimum wage, of making education affordable, of giving people health care, of coming up with common sense gun reform while also respecting the right to bear arms. Well, recognizing um, with respect to health care, the complexities of the system, but that all Americans should have health care, recognizing the complexities that are involved in operating a small business, but that Americans should have a living wage. All of these things can, in fact, be reconciled with common sense legislation. And the American people are so largely behind that. Um, but we have the filibuster and the filibuster you know, it was often said, well, the filibuster exists to protect the minority political party that's in power. But that's not how the filibuster is truly being used and abused by the GQP. The filibuster is being used to help the billionaires and DECA millionaires in their quest to gain more wealth. By and large, all of these measures that the Democrats are proposing are pieces of legislation for the people so that Americans who are not millionaires or billionaires can truly live the American dream to rebuild the middle class in America. And the GQP doesn't want that. And so McConnell has warned of a scorched earth Senate if Democrats change the filibuster. And McConnell says nobody serving in this chamber can ever begin to imagine what that completely scorched earth Senate would be like. Let me tell you what a scorched earth Senate is. It's a blocking the release of the Mueller report, blocking Supreme Court nominees, blocking voting rights bills, blocking gun safety legislation, blocking the minimum wage, blocking 
laws targeting corruption, these anti-corruption laws. And then it's McConnell championing all of these, you know, basically destroying the filibuster and championing these policies that have totally changed the makeup of our judicial system. And we know that Amy Coney Barrett was basically put in in six days after uh, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, you can't threaten somebody with something you already do. It kind of takes it takes the uh, the umph out of your threat when you're threatening them with what you've been doing the past eight years or so. You, Mitch McConnell, are the scorched earth senator. You created the scorched earth Senate. You are responsible for this. So the concept that now, ooh, all of a sudden, watch out. If the Democrats get rid of the filibuster, here comes scorched earth. It's just bullshit. And I Here's think the thing, the- Brett, the Democrats don't want to remove the filibuster to get to put in place legislation that's like unpopular. The Democrats want to pass the legislation that's wildly, overwhelmingly supported by the American people, whereas the Republicans, they wanted to eliminate the filibuster and push through legislation that helps the one percent. We want to expand voting rights to all the people with the For the People Act. That's what we want to do. We want to be implementing background checks for guns so that people like the shooter in Atlanta aren't able to get a gun easier than they are able to register to vote. I mean, we want to do common sense things that people agree with. The Equality Act, provide protections to the LGBTQ plus community. These are all just like no brainers to me. Like, yes, of course we want expanded voting rights. Of course we want equality. Of course we want sensible gun control and a raised minimum wage. We want all of these things and everybody should want all of these things. And the fact that Mitch McConnell felt the need to come out and make that not so veiled threat shows me that I think we're on the right track and we should call his bluff. We should do it call his bluff, stand up, let's work to change the filibuster. And the good news is we're starting to see an opening here because both President Biden and Senator Joe Manchin, who Senator Manchin has been very averse to any sorts of changes to the filibuster previously, he recently expressed interest in possibly a revised filibuster process by which people actually have to do a talking filibuster rather than just say, oh, filibuster, and it's like their get-out-of-jail-free card to having to pass any sort of legislation. So, you know, I think we got to take what we could get here, and I think we should fight for this talking filibuster, and we should be pushing for all these policies that, like you say, Ben, are policies that 90, 80% of the people want. These are policies for the people. And if the Democrats can deliver on these wins, we'll never have to worry about Republicans using the filibuster for their own ends because the Democrats will win elections because people will like the policies that they're delivering. They will like their higher wages. They will like their expanded voting rights. They will like all these things and Democrats will naturally win elections and we don't even have to We could just make them the far right fringe party that they are. Just make them small and make them go away. Great. Now, the fall. <laughs> love it. The file, the final segment of the show is a segment that we call Jorder Patrol. Jordy, tell <laughs> us a funny story about the Mycellus brothers that first comes to your mind. Go. So here's the thing. Jorder can't be my nickname because Jordy <laughs> is actually shorter than Jorder. So it, that's not how nicknames work. Jordy story. I remember right off the top of my head. Whew. Ben, you were 16, means I was eight, Brett, 11. That's how math works. Uh, we were filming, we were making like a video. Um, you know, this story's not even that funny. You guys were just mean to me in the end. 
Jordan Patrol. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of the Midas Touch Podcast. This has been Mycellus, Brett Mycellus, and Jordan, the Border Patrol. Jordy Mycellus. Thank no. you so much for listening. Hold, hold on, hold on. That's not. That's Shout not, out to the Midas Mighty. No, that's not my nickname. See you later. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Ha, ha, ha.